Part One of the Case of the Registered Letter by Augusta Groner, translated by Colburn Grace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Case of the Registered Letter, Part One. Oh, sir, save him if you can. Save my poor nephew. I know he is innocent. The little old lady sank back in her chair, gazing up at Commissioner von Riedau with tear-dimmed eyes full of helpless appeal. The commissioner looked thoughtful. "'But the case is in the hands of the local authorities, madam,' he answered gently, a strain of pity in his voice. "'I don't exactly see how we could interfere.' "'But they believe Albert guilty. They haven't given him a chance.' "'He cannot be sentenced without sufficient proof of his guilt.' "'But the trial, the horrible trial, it will kill him. His heart is weak. I thought, I, I thought you might send someone, some one of your detectives, to find out the truth of the case. You must have the best people here in Vienna. Oh, my poor Albert!' Her voice died away in a suppressed sob, and she covered her face to keep back the tears. The commissioner pressed a bell on his desk. "'Is Detective Joseph Muller anywhere about the building?' he asked of the attendant, who appeared at the door. "'I think he is, sir. I saw him come in not long ago. Ask him to come up to this room. Say I would like to speak to him.' The attendant went out. "'I have sent for one of the best men in our force, madam,' continued the commissioner, turning back to the pathetic little figure in the chair we will go into this matter a little more in detail and see if it is possible for us to interfere with the work of the local authorities in blank the little old lady gave her eyes a hasty dab with a dainty handkerchief and raised her head again fighting for self-control she was a quaint little figure with soft gray hair drawn back smoothly from a gentle-featured face in which each wrinkle seemed the seal of some loving thought for others her bonnet and gown were of excellent material in delicate soft colors but cut in the style of an earlier decade the capable lines of her thin little hands showed through the fabric of her gray gloves her whole attitude bore the impress of one who had adventured far beyond the customary routine of her home circle, adventured out into the world in fear and trembling, impelled by the stress of a great love. A knock was heard at the door, and a small, slight man, with a kind, smooth-shaven face, entered at the commissioner's call. "'You sent for me, sir?' he asked. "'Yes, Muller. There is a matter here in which I need your advice, your assistance, perhaps. This is Detective Muller, Miss—the commissioner picked up the card on his desk—Miss Graumann. If you will tell us now, more in detail, all that you can tell us about this case, we may be able to help you." "'Oh, if you would,' murmured Miss Graumann, with something more of hope in her voice. The expression of sympathetic interest on the face of the newcomer had already won her confidence for him. Her slight figure straightened up in the chair, and the two men sat down opposite her, prepared to listen to her story. "'I will tell you all I know and understand about this matter, gentlemen,' she began. 
My name is Babette Graumann, and I live with my nephew, Albert Graumann, engineering expert in the village of Grunau, which is not far from the city of Blank. My nephew Albert, the dearest, truest, sobs threatened to overcome her again, but she mastered them bravely. Albert is now in prison, accused of the murder of his friend John Siders in the latter's lodgings in Blank. Yes, that is the gist of what you have already told me, said the commissioner. Muller, Miss Graumann believes her nephew innocent, contrary to the opinion of the local authorities in Blank. She has come to ask for someone from here who could ferret out the truth of this matter. You are free now, and if we find that it can be done without offending the local authorities— Who is the commissioner in charge of the case in blank? asked Muller. Commissioner Lang is his name, I believe, replied Miss Graumann. Hm, Muller and the commissioner exchanged glances. I think we can venture to hear more of this, said the commissioner, as if in answer to their unspoken thought. Can you give us the details now, madam? Who is, or rather who was, this John Siders? John Siders came to our village a little over a year ago, continued Miss Graumann. He came from Chicago, he told us, although he was evidently a German by birth. He bought a nice little piece of property, not far from our home, and settled down there. He was a quiet man, and made few friends, but he seemed to take to Albert and came to see us frequently. Albert had spent some years in America, in Chicago, and Siders liked to talk to him about things and people there. But one day Siders suddenly sold his property and moved to Blank. Two weeks later he was found dead in his lodgings in the city, murdered, and now, now they have accused Albert of the crime. On what grounds? Oh, I beg your pardon, sir, I did not mean— That's all right, Muller, said the commissioner. As you may have to undertake the case, you might as well begin to do the questioning now. They say— Miss Graumann's voice quavered— they say that Albert was the last person known to have been in Sider's room. They say that it was his revolver found in the room. That is the dreadful part of it. It was his revolver. He acknowledges it, but he did not know until the police showed it to him that the weapon was not in its usual place in his study. They tell me that everything speaks for his guilt but I cannot believe it, I cannot. He says he is innocent in spite of everything. I believe him. I brought him up, sir. I was like his own mother to him. He never knew any other mother. He never lied to me, not once, when he was a little boy, and I don't believe he'd lie to me now, now that he's a man of forty-five. He says he did not kill John Siders, Oh, I know, even without his saying it, that he would not do such a thing. Can you tell us anything more about the murder itself? questioned Mueller gently. Is there any possibility of suicide? Or was there a robbery? They say it was no suicide, sir, and that there was a large sum of money missing. But why should Albert take anyone else's money? He has money of his own and he earns a good income besides, 
We have all that we need. Oh, it is some dreadful mistake. There is the newspaper account of the discovery of the body. Perhaps Mr. Muller might like to read that. She pointed to a sheet of newspaper on the desk. The commissioner handed it to Muller. It was an evening paper dated blank, September 24th, and it gave an elaborate account in provincial journalese of the discovery that morning of the body of John Siders, evidently murdered, in his lodgings. The main facts to be gathered from the long-winded story were as follows. John Siders had rented the rooms in which he met his death about ten days before, paying a month's rent in advance. The lodgings consisted of two rooms in a little house in a quiet street. It was a street of simple two-story, one- and two-family dwellings, occupied by artisans and small tradespeople. There were many open spaces, gardens, and vacant lots in the street. The house in which Siders lodged belonged to a travelling salesman by the name of Winter. The man was away from home a great deal, and his wife, with her child and an old servant, lived in the lower part of the house, while the rooms occupied by Siders were in the upper story. Siders lived very quietly, going out frequently in the afternoon, but returning early in the evening. He had said to his landlady that he had many friends in blank, but during the time of his stay in the house he had had but one caller, a gentleman who came on the evening of the 23rd of September. The old maid had opened the door for him and showed him to Mr. Sider's rooms. She described this visitor as having a full black beard and wearing a broad-rimmed grey felt hat. Nobody saw the man go out, for the old maid, the only person in the house at the time, had retired early. Mrs. Winter and her little girl were spending the night with the former's mother in a distant part of the city. The next morning the old servant, taking the lodger's coffee up to him at the usual hour, found him dead on the floor of his sitting-room, shot through the heart. The woman ran screaming from the house and alarmed the neighbors. A policeman at the corner heard the noise and led the crowd up to the room where the dead man lay. It was plain to be seen that this was not a case of suicide. Everywhere were signs of a terrible struggle. The furniture was overturned, the dressing-table and the cupboard were open and their contents scattered on the floor, one of the window-curtains was torn into strips, as if the victim had been trying to escape by way of the window, but had been dragged back into the room by his murderer. An overturned ink-bottle on the table had spattered wide, and added to the general confusion. In the midst of the disorder lay the body of the murdered man, now cold in the rigour of death. The police commissioner arrived soon, took possession of the rooms, and made a thorough examination of the premises. A letter found on the desk gave another proof, if such were needed, that this was not a case of suicide. This letter was in the handwriting of the dead man, and read as follows. Dear friend, I appreciate greatly all the kindness shown me by yourself and your good wife. I have been more successful than I thought possible in overcoming the obstacles you know of. 
Therefore, I shall be very glad to join you day after tomorrow, Sunday, in the proposed excursion. I will call for you at 8 a.m. The cab and the champagne will be my share of the trip. We'll have a jolly day and drink a glass or two to our plans for the future. With best greetings for both of you, your old friend, John. Blank, Friday, September 23rd. An envelope, not yet addressed, lay beside this letter. It was clear that the man who penned these words had no thought of suicide. On the contrary, he was looking forward to a day of pleasure in the near future, and laying plans for the time to come. The murderer's bullet had pierced a heart pulsing with the joy of life. This was the gist of the account in the evening paper. Muller read it through carefully lingering over several points which seemed to interest him particularly. Then he turned to Miss Babette Graumann, and then what happened, he asked. Then the police commissioner came to Grunau and questioned my nephew. They had found out that Albert was Mr. Sider's only friend here, and late that evening the mayor and the commissioner came to our house with the revolver they had found in the room in Plank, and they... they her voice trembled again, they arrested my dear boy and took him away. Have you visited him in prison? What does he say about it himself? He seems quite hopeless. He says that he is innocent. Oh, I know he is, but everything is against him. He acknowledges that it was he who was in Mr. Sider's room the evening before the murder. He went there because Siders wrote him to come. He says he left early, and that John acted queerly. He knows they will not believe his story. This worry and anxiety will kill him. He has a serious heart trouble. He has suffered from it for years, and it has been growing steadily worse. I dare not think what this excitement may do for him. Miss Grauman broke down again and sobbed aloud. Muller laid his hands soothingly on the little old fingers that gripped the arm of the chair. "'Did your nephew send you here to ask for help?' he inquired very gently. "'Oh, no!' the old lady looked up at him through her tears. "'No, he would not have done that. I'm afraid that he'll be angry if he knows that I have come. He seemed so hopeless, so dazed. I just couldn't stand it. It seemed to me that the police in blank were taking things for granted and just sitting there waiting for an innocent man to confess, instead of looking for the real murderer, who may be gone the Lord knows where by now. Miss Graumann's faded cheeks flushed a delicate pink, and she straightened up in her chair again while her eyes snapped defiance through the tears that hung on their lashes. A faint gleam twinkled up in Muller's eyes, and he did not look at his chief. Dr. von Riedau's own face glowed in a slowly mounting flush, and his eyes drooped in a moment of conscious embarrassment at some recollection, the sting of which was evidently made worse by Muller's presence but Commissioner von Riedau had brains enough to acknowledge his mistakes and to learn from them. He looked across the desk at Miss Graumann. "'You are right, madam. The police have made that mistake more than once. 
and a man with a clear record deserves the benefit of the doubt. We will take up this case. Detective Muller will be put in charge of it, and that means, madam, that we are giving you the very best assistance the Imperial Police Force affords. Miss Babette Graumann did not attempt to speak. In a wave of emotion she stretched out both little hands to the detective and clasped his warmly. Oh, thank you, she said at last. I thank you. He's just like my own boy to me. He's all the child I ever had, you know. But there are difficulties in the way, continued the commissioner in a business-like tone. The local authorities in blank have not asked for our assistance, and we are taking up the case over their heads, as it were. I shall have to leave that to Mueller's diplomacy. He will come to blank and have an interview with your nephew. Then he will have to use his own judgment as to the next steps, and as to how far he may go in opposition to what has been done by the police there. And then I may go back home? asked Miss Crowman. Go home with the assurance that you will help my poor boy? Yes, you may depend on us, madam. Is there anything we can do for you here? Are you alone in the city? Oh, no, thank you. There is a friend here who will take care of me. She will put me on the afternoon express back to blank. It is very likely that I will take that train myself, said Muller. If there is anything that you need on the journey, call on me. Oh, thank you. I will indeed. Thank you both, gentlemen. And now good-bye, and God bless you. The commissioner bowed, and Muller held the door open for Miss Graumann to pass out. There was silence in the room, as the two men looked after the quaint little figure slowly descending the stairs. A brave little woman, murmured the commissioner. It is not only the mother in the flesh who knows what a mother's love is, added Muller. Next morning Joseph Muller stood in the cell of the prison in blank, confronting Albert Graumann accused of the murder of John Siders. The detective had just come from a rather difficult interview with Commissioner Lange. But the latter, though not a brilliant man, was at least good-natured. He acknowledged the right of the accused and his family to ask for outside assistance, and agreed with Muller that it was better to have someone in the official service brought in, rather than a private detective, whose work, in its eventual results, might bring shame on the police. Muller explained that Miss Graumann did not want her nephew to know that it was she who had asked for aid in his behalf, and that it could only redound to his, Lange's, credit if it were understood that he had sent to Vienna for expert assistance in this case. It would be a proof of his conscientious attention to duty, and would ensure praise for him whichever way the case turned out. Commissioner Lange saw the force of this argument, and finally gave Muller permission to handle the case as he thought best, rather relieved than otherwise for his own part. The detective's next errand was to the prison, where he now stood looking up into the deep-set dark eyes of a tall, broad-shouldered, black-bearded man who had arisen from the cot at his entrance. Albert Graumann had a strong, self-reliant face and bearing. His natural expression was somewhat hard and stern, 
but it was the expression of a man of integrity and responsibility. Muller had already made some inquiries as to the prisoner's reputation and business standing in the community, and all that he had heard was favourable. A certain hardness and lack of amiability in Graumann's nature made it difficult for him to win the hearts of others, but although he was not generally loved, he was universally respected. Through the signs of nagging fear, sorrow, and ill-health, printed clearly on the face before him, Muller's keen eyes looked down into the soul of a man who might be overbearing, pitiless even, if occasion demanded, but who would not murder, at least not for the sake of gain. This last possibility Muller had dismissed from his mind even before he saw the prisoner. The man's reputation was sufficient to make the thought ridiculous but he had not made up his mind whether it might not be a case of a murder after a quarrel. Now he began to doubt even this, when he looked into the intelligent, harsh-featured face of the man in the cell. But Muller had the gift of putting aside his own convictions when he wanted his mind clear to consider evidence before him. Graumann had risen from his sitting position when he saw a stranger. His heavy brows drew down over his eyes, but he waited for the other to speak. "'I am Detective Joseph Muller from Vienna,' began the newcomer, when he had seen that the prisoner did not intend to start the conversation. "'Have you come to question me again?' asked Graumann wearily. "'I can say no more than I have already said to the police commissioner and no amount of cross-examination can make me confess a crime of which I am not guilty, no matter what evidence there may be against me." The prisoner's voice was hard and determined, in spite of its note of physical and mental weariness. "'I have not come to extort a confession from you, Mr. Graumann,' Muller replied gently, but to help you establish your innocence, if it is possible." A wave of color flooded the prisoner's cheek. He gasped, pressed his hand to his heart, and dropped down on his cot. "'Pardon me,' he said finally, hesitating like a man who is fighting for breath. "'My heart is weak. Any excitement upsets me. You mean that the authorities are not convinced of my guilt, in spite of the evidence? You mean that they will give me the benefit of the doubt?' that they will give me a chance for life? Yes, that is the reason for my coming here. I am to take this case in hand. If you will talk freely to me, Mr. Graumann, I may be able to help you. I have seen too many mistakes of justice because of circumstantial evidence to lay any too great stress upon it. I have waited to hear your side of the story from yourself. I did not want to hear it from others. Will you tell it to me now? No, do not move. I will get the stool myself." Graumann sat back on the cot, his head resting against the wall. His eyes had closed while Muller was speaking, but his quieter breathing showed that he was mastering the physical attack, which had so shaken him at the first glimpse of hope. He opened his eyes now and looked at Muller steadily for a moment. Then he said, Yes, I will tell you. My life and my work have taught me to gauge men. I will tell you everything I know about this sad affair. 
I will tell you the absolute truth, and I think you will believe me." "I will believe you," said Muller simply. "You know the details of the murder, of course, and why I was arrested?" "You were arrested because you were the last person seen in the company of the murdered man." "Exactly. Then I may go back and tell you something of my connection with John Siders?" "It will be the very best thing to do." "I live in Grunau, as you doubtless know, and am the engineering expert of large machine works there. My father before me held an important position in the factory, and my family have always lived in Grunau. I have travelled a great deal myself. I am forty-five years old, a childless widower, and live with my old aunt, Miss Babette Graumann, and my ward, Miss Eleonora Rimmer a young lady of twenty-two. Muller looked up with a slight start of surprise, but did not say anything. Graumann continued, A little over a year ago, John Siders, who signed himself as coming from Chicago, bought a piece of property in our town, and came to live there. I made his acquaintance in the café, and he seemed to take a fancy to me. I also had spent several years in Chicago, and we naturally came to speak of the place. We discovered that we had several mutual acquaintances there, and enjoyed talking over the old times. Otherwise I did not take particularly to the man, and as I came to know him better, I noticed that he never mentioned that part of his life which lay back of the years in Chicago. I asked a casual question once or twice as to his home and family, but he evaded me every time, and would not give a direct answer. He was evidently a German by birth and education, a man with university training, and one who knew life thoroughly. He had delightful manners, and when he could forget his shyness for a while, he could be very agreeable. The ladies of my family came to like him, and encouraged him to call frequently. Then the thing happened that I should not have believed possible. My ward, Miss Rimmer, a quiet, reserved girl, fell in love with this man about whom none of us knew anything, a man with a past of which he did not care to speak. I was not in any way satisfied with the match, and they seemed to realize it, for Siders managed to persuade the girl to a secret engagement. I discovered it a month or two ago, and it made me very angry. I did not let them see how badly I felt, but I warned Laura not to have too much to do with the boy, and I set about finding out something regarding his earlier life. It was my duty to do this, as I was the girl's guardian. She has no other relative living, and no one to turn to except my aunt and myself. I wrote to Mr. Richard Tresseter in Chicago, the owner of the factory in which I had been employed while there. John had told me that Tresseter had been his client during the four years in which he practiced law in Chicago. I received an answer about the middle of August. Mr. Tresseter had been able to find out only that John was born in the town of Hartburg in a certain year. This was enough. I took leave of absence for a few days and went to Hartburg, which, as you know, is about a hundred and forty miles from here. Three days later I knew all that I wanted to know. 
John Siders was not the man's real name, or rather it was only part of his name. His full name was Theodore John Bellman, and his mother was an Englishwoman whose maiden name was Siders. His father was a county official who died at an early age, leaving his widow and the boy in deepest poverty. Mrs. Bellman moved to Blank to give music lessons. Theodore went to school there, then finally to college, and was an excellent pupil everywhere. But one day it was discovered that he had been stealing money from the banker in whose house he was serving as private tutor to the latter's sons. A large sum of money was missing, and every evidence pointed to young Belmont as the thief. He denied strenuously that he was guilty, but the district judge, it was the present prosecuting attorney Schmidt in blank, sentenced him. He spent eight months in prison, during which time his mother died of grief at the disgrace. There must have been something good in the boy, for he had never forgotten that it was his guilt that struck down his only relative, the mother who had worked so hard for him. He had atoned for this crime of his youth, and during the years that have passed since then he had been an honest, upright man. Graumann paused a moment and pressed his hand to his heart again. His voice had grown weaker, and he breathed hard. Finally he continued, I commanded my ward to break off her engagement, as I could not allow her to marry a man who was a freed convict. Siders sold his property some few weeks after that, and moved to blank. Eleonora acquiesced in my commands, but she was very unhappy, and allowed me to see very little of her. Then came the events of the evening of September 23rd, the events which have turned out so terribly. I will try to tell you the story just as it happened, so far as I am concerned. I had seen nothing of John since he left this town. He had made several attempts before his departure for blank to change my opinion, and my decision as to his marriage to my ward. But I let him see plainly that it was impossible for him to enter our family with such a past behind him. He asserted his innocence of the charges against him, and declared that he had been unjustly accused and imprisoned. I am afraid that I was hard towards him. I begin to understand now, as I never thought I should, what it means to be accused of crime. I begin to realize that it is possible for every evidence to point to a man who is absolutely innocent of the deed in question. I begin to think now that John may have been right, that possibly he also may have been accused and sentenced on circumstantial evidence alone. I have thought much, and I have learned much in these terrible days." The prisoner paused again and sat brooding, his eyes looking out into space. Muller respected his suffering and sat in equal silence until Graumann raised his eyes to his again. Then came the evening of the twenty-third of September. Yes, that evening, it's all like a dream to me. Grauman began again. John wrote me a letter asking me to come to see him on that evening. I tore up the letter and threw it away. 
or perhaps—yes, I remember now—I did not wish Eleonora to see that he had written me. He asked me to come to see him, as he had something to say to me, something of the greatest importance for us both. He asked me not to mention to any one that I was to see him, as it would be wiser no one should know that we were still in communication with each other. There was a strain of nervous excitement visible in his letter. I thought it better to go and see him as he requested. I felt that I owed him some little reparation for having denied him the great wish of his heart. It was my duty to make up to him in other ways for what I had felt obliged to do. I knew him for a nervous, high-strung man, overwrought by brooding for years on what he called his wrongs, and I did not know what he might do if I refused his request. It was not of myself, I thought, in this connection, but of the girl at home who looked to me for protection. I had no fear for myself. It never occurred to me to think of taking a weapon with me. How my revolver, and it is undoubtedly my revolver, for there was a peculiar break in the silver ornamentation on the handle which is easily recognizable, how this revolver of mine got into his room is more than I can say. Until the police commissioner showed it to me two or three days ago, I had no idea that it was not in the box in my study where it is ordinarily kept. Graumann paused again and looked about him as if searching for something. He rose and poured himself out a glass of water. Let me put some of this in it, said Muller. It will do you good. From a flask in his pocket, he poured a few drops of brandy into the water. Graumann drank it and nodded gratefully. Then he took up his story again. I never discovered why Siders had sent for me. When I arrived at the appointed time, I found the door of the house closed. I was obliged to ring several times before an old servant opened the door. She seemed surprised that it had been locked. She said that the door was always unlatched, and that Mr. Siders himself must have closed it, contrary to all custom, for she had not done it, and there was no one else in the house but the two of them. Siders was waiting for me at the top of the stairs, calling down a noisy welcome. When I asked him finally what it was so important that he wanted to say to me, he evaded me and continued to chatter on about commonplace things. Finally I insisted upon knowing why he had wanted me to come, and he replied that the reason for it had already been fulfilled, that he had nothing more to say, and that I could go as soon as I wanted to. He appeared quite calm but he must have been very nervous, for as I stood by the desk telling him what I thought of his actions, he moved his hand hastily among the papers there and upset the inkstand. I jumped back, but not before I had received several large spots of ink on my trousers. He was profuse in his apologies for the accident, and tried to take out the spots with blotting paper. Then, at last, when I insisted upon going, he looked out to see whether there was still a light on the stairs, and led me down to the door himself, standing there for some time, looking after me. I was slightly alarmed, as well as angry, at his actions. 
I believe that he could not have been quite in his right mind, that the strain of nervousness which was apparent in his nature had really made him ill, for I remember several peculiar incidents of my visit to him. One of these was that he almost insisted upon my taking away with me, ostensibly to take care of them, several valuable pieces of jewellery which he possessed. He seemed almost offended when I refused to do anything of the kind. Then, as I parted from him at the door, not in a very good humour, I will acknowledge, he said to me, You will think of me very often in the future, more often than you would believe now. This is all the truth and nothing but the truth about my visit to John Siders in the evening of September 23rd. As it had been his wish, I said nothing to the ladies at home, or to any one else about the occurrence. And, as I have told you, I destroyed his letter, asking me to come to him. The following day, about noon, the commissioner of police from Blank called at my office in the factory, and informed me bluntly that John Siders had been found shot dead in his lodgings that morning. I was naturally shocked, as one would be at such news, in spite of the fact that I had parted from the man in anger, and that I had no reason to be particularly fond of him. What shocked me most of all was the sudden thought that John had taken his own life. It was a perfectly natural thought when I considered his nervousness and his peculiar actions of the evening before. I believe I exclaimed, it was a suicide, almost without realizing that I was doing so. The commissioner looked at me sharply and said that suicide was out of the question, that it was an evident case of murder. He questioned me as to Sider's affairs, of which I told only what every one here in the village knew. I did not consider it incumbent upon me to disclose to the police the disgrace of the man's early life. I had been obliged to hurt him cruelly enough because of that, and I saw no necessity for blackening his name now that he was dead. Also, as according to what the commissioner said, it was a case of murder for robbery, I did not wish to go into any details of our connection with Siders that would cause the name of my ward to be mentioned. After a few more questions, the commissioner left me. I was busy all the afternoon, and did not return to my home until later than usual. I found my aunt somewhat worried, because Miss Rimmer had left the house immediately after our early dinner, and had not yet returned. We both knew the girl to be still grieving over her broken engagement, and we dreaded the effect this last dreadful news might have on her. We supposed, however, that she had gone to spend the afternoon with a friend, and were rather glad to be spared the necessity of telling her at once what had happened. I had scarcely finished my supper when the doorbell rang, and to my astonishment the mayor of Grunau was announced, accompanied by the same police commissioner who had visited me in my office that morning. The mayor was an old friend of mine, and his deeply grave face showed me that something serious had occurred. It was indeed serious, and for some minutes I could not grasp the meaning of the commissioner's questions. 
Finally I realized with a tremendous shock that I, I myself, was under suspicion of the murder of John Siders. The description given by the old servant of the man who had visited Siders the evening before, the very clothes that I wore, my hat and the trousers spotted by the purple ink, led to my identification as this mysterious visitor. The servant had let me in, but she had not seen me go out. Then I discovered, when confronted suddenly with my own revolver, which had been found on the floor of the room, some distance from the body of the dead man, that this same revolver had been identified as mine by my ward, Eleonora Rummer, who had been to the police station at Blank in the early afternoon hours. Some impulse of loyalty to her dead lover, some foolish feminine fear that I might have spoken against him in my earlier interviews with the commissioner had driven the girl to this step. A few questions sufficed to draw from her the story of her secret engagement, of its ending, and of my quarrel with John. I will say for her that I am certain she did not realize that all these things were calculated to cast suspicion on me. The poor girl is too unused to the ways of police courts, to the devious ways of the law, to realize what she was doing. The sight of my revolver broke her down completely, and she acknowledged that it was mine. That is all, except that I was arrested and brought here as you see. I told the commissioner the story of my visit to John Siders exactly as I told it to you, but it was plain to be seen that he did not believe me. It is plain to be seen also that he is firmly convinced of my guilt and that he is greatly satisfied with himself at having traced the criminal so soon. And yet he was not quite satisfied, said Mueller gently. You see that he has sent to the capital for assistance in the case. Mueller felt this little untruth to be justified for the sake of the honor of the police force. Yes, I'm surprised at that, said Grauman in his former tone of weariness. What do you think you will be able to do about it? I must ask questions here and there before I can form a plan of campaign," replied Muller. What do you think about it yourself? Who do you think killed Siders? How can I know who it was? I only know it is not I," answered Grauman. Did he have any enemies? No, none that I knew of. And he had few friends, either. You knew there was a sum of money missing from his rooms. Yes, the sum they named to me was just about the price that he had received for the sale of his property here. They did me the honor to believe that if I had taken the money at all, I had done so merely as a blind. At least they did not take me for a thief as well as a murderer. If the money is really missing, it was for its sake he was murdered, I suppose. Yes, that would be natural, said Muller. And you know nothing of any other relations or connections that the man may have had? Anything that might give us a clue to the truth? No, nothing. He stood so alone here as far as I knew. Of course, as I told you, his actions of the evening before having been so peculiar, and as I knew that he was not in the happiest frame of mind, 
I naturally thought of suicide at once, when they told me that he had been found shot dead. Then they told me that the appearance of the room and many other things proved suicide to have been out of the question. I know nothing more about it. I cannot think any more about it. I know only that I am here in danger of being sentenced for the crime that I never committed. That is enough to keep any man's mind busy." He leaned back with an intense fatigue in every line of his face and figure. Muller rose from his seat. "'I am afraid I have tired you, Mr. Graumann,' he said, but it was necessary that I should know all that you had to tell me. Try and rest a little now, and meanwhile be assured that I am doing all I can to find out the truth of this matter. As far as I can tell now, I do not believe that you have killed John Siders, but I must find some further proofs that will convince others as well as myself. If it is of any comfort to you, I can tell you that during a long career as police detective I have been most astonishingly fortunate in the cases I have undertaken. I am hoping that my usual good luck will follow me here also. I am hoping it for your sake." The man on the cot took the hand the detective offered him and pressed it firmly. "'You will let me know as soon as you have found anything, anything that gives me hope?' I will indeed, and now save your strength, and do not worry. I will help you if it is in my power. End of Part One